Amen. First Corinthians chapter 13. We have taken a couple of weeks here, a few weeks, to consider those great Christian virtues of faith, hope, and love. And today, we consider with God's help, love. We'll read 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you may have heard this chapter read yesterday, and uh, that was not planned. It was more a case of uh, great minds thinking alike. 1 Corinthians 13. We'll read the chapter, and then we'll read a couple of verses from Ephesians 5, and we'll focus mainly on those short verses in Ephesians. But since we do consider love this morning, we go to this very famous chapter where the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us about the more excellent way of love. So let us hear from God's holy word as he speaks to us through it. He gives it to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies they will cease Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. Now we see, but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Going forward to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2, God's holy word. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come together to consider this great virtue of love, 
and central, certainly, to the Christian life. Uh, Think of the verse in 1 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, the goal of our instruction is love that issues from a pure heart and a clean conscience and a sound faith. The goal of all of his instruction to God's people was love. But uh, we need to take great pains to make sure that our notion of what love is and what we believe about it is shaped by Scripture. We, as I mentioned before, we live in a man-centered age, thinking about things from the ground up and not heaven down. Love, according to many, must be that which makes me feel good. It must be that which comes easily to me. Uh, But of course, as biblical Christians, we know that love must stretch deeper than that. Love is about seeking the good of others. Love is about turning ourselves and others toward ultimate things. Described certainly as the most excellent way in 1 Corinthians 13. It's better than living according to other standards like pleasure or equity. What brings me the most pleasure on earth? What ends up with all the people having close to the same thing? No, the way to which we are supposed, in which we are supposed to walk is love. It rejoices with the truth. And so we need to know the truth. It is not self-seeking, it is good-seeking. And so in seeking that which is good, we need to ask ourselves, what is ultimately good? What is the best thing that we could do in this life? The best thing that we could seek in this life? Well, we know that God is the ultimate good, isn't he? There is nothing better than him. There is nothing higher than him. And so the best love that we can have as his creatures is a love for him, a love for God. There is no love that is greater than that. But our love for God is, of course, made possible by his love for us, which will continuously humble us the more that we receive that truth. And so we are called in Ephesians 5 to be imitators of God, to imitate him as dearly loved children. That that is, you are loved by God, and that is how you know him. In his love, you are to imitate him. And what gives shape to the love of God? Well, Christ does. The way that God loves us in Christ the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. So, here is our our central truth, our life-transforming reality this morning. Love is a moral virtue that proceeds from faith and hope, which seeks union, satisfaction, and goodwill. So love is moral, it proceeds from faith and hope, and it seeks union, satisfaction, and goodwill. We'll unpack all of that. The first, the truth that love is moral and it's a fruit of faith. Love is moral and it is a fruit of faith. When we say that love is a moral virtue, which is really redundant, right? Something is not virtuous unless it is morally sound. So we say that that love is a virtue. Uh, We say something that cuts against what most people would say love is. Many people say it's a feeling. It's something that may be here today and gone tomorrow. One of the mantras of the appearing, disappearing, and reappearing romances of our modern age, one of the phrases that you may hear is, I love you, but I'm not in love 
with you. What a sad world where that is something that has uh, a phrase that has gained prominence. In other words, they're saying that my idea of love is something that, that must be easy. It has to come easy to me. Uh, love is something that will just come naturally and I won't even think twice about it. But when we say that love is moral, we come away with a, a much different sense. That it's something that we, to which we must strive and our ideas of it, our beliefs about it need to be shaped by a standard outside of ourselves. Uh, for this material, I've really leaned heavily upon Mark Jones, a PCA pastor in Vancouver who wrote a book called Faith, Hope, and Love. And he says that love is the foundation of all of the Christian religion. And the way that we are instructed to love God and love neighbor, the standard is, of course, the Ten Commandments. That may strike us as, as strange, that the, the law of God is consonant with the love of God. How do we love God? We strive to keep his commandments. William Ames, a Puritan writer, pastor, and theologian, says that one cannot truly love God who does not strive to please him in all things and be like him. And we operate with this kind of knowledge in our lives, right? If, if, if someone loves you or if someone claims to love you, it will issue forth in their life with certain kinds of action. The Apostle Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. He says all of the commandments are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. That's something that we ought to consider and, and, and think about when we shape what we believe about love. It does no wrong to a neighbor. Let me illustrate that with a bit of a funny point and then we'll apply it with, uh, in some ways that are perhaps more uncomfortable. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. In other words, if you love your neighbor, your friend, you will seek their good, what is ultimately good for them, not what is comfortable for them or for you. Imagine you have a friend who is a bachelor. He's been waiting for and hoping for a wife for many years, but that blessing has eluded him. He was not able to marry young. He's now in his late 40s. He's not in the shape that he used to be in in his early 20s, but he continues to wear clothes that he may have worn when he was in his early 20s. He seems to think that this will help him as he pursues a mate. All his buddies and their wives agree that uh, this is not a very good look for him. The jeans are a little bit too tight. The jeans are covered with rhinestones. There are dragons on his t-shirts. His glasses are neon-colored frames. It's kind of a bad look, right? All around, it doesn't look good. It's weird. But his buddies can't bring themselves to talk to him because they don't want to hurt his feelings. They don't want to discourage him. Lo and behold, against all odds, the Lord blesses him with a wife. She is wonderful, perfect for him, God-fearing. They're so happy that the Lord brought them together at this stage of life. Immediately after the wedding and the honeymoon, his friends realize his entire wardrobe changes. Uh, just out of the blue, like that. And a couple weeks later, he's, they're getting together for coffee, and he says, yeah, my wife took all of my bachelor clothes into the backyard. She burned them all. And I realize now that I looked quite ridiculous 
And I'm just wondering, you know, you guys are my friends. I'm just kind of wondering, why did you never tell me that uh, I probably should think about dressing differently? All of his friends, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to sheepishly look down and say, well, you know, I never really realized that there was something off about the way that you dressed. You see, too often we avoid the uncomfortable when the uncomfortable thing is actually the loving thing. Let's apply it in more uncomfortable ways. You have a friend who is caught in a pattern of sin, but you don't take action. You do not talk to them about it, whether personally or in the context of the church. And Hopefully, at some point, the church becomes involved in such situations. Church discipline is a very important part of our lives. But we don't deal with it because it's uncomfortable. We don't like that which is uncomfortable. But that is being unloving. That is an unloving thing. A parent neglects to discipline a child because uh, the parent doesn't like sort of being at odds with the child and hearing the child say disrespectful things like, I don't like you anymore. Right? So the, the parent avoids discipline. A parent who does not discipline a child is a parent who does not love. We often avoid the uncomfortable things when the uncomfortable things are loving things. On a grander scale, we see certain patterns of sin in our culture, in our world, in our lives. Certainly, we would all know people who follow these trends, and even, sadly, in the church. We see things like homosexual lifestyles, transgenderism, rampant drug use, all proliferating in our culture, all which are destructive paths. They are paths that lead to destruction. But because it's uncomfortable, we generally will try, uh, often will be tempted to let people go their own way, to pursue their own paths. How can we say that we love someone if we let them pursue that which is destructive? So love is something that seeks the good, and the good is something that's grounded in God. It's grounded in what he tells us. It also proceeds from faith and hope. When we sing amazing love, how can it be? And we sing all of the, uh, the, the glorious things that God has done for us. What's going on? Our love is being shaped as we trust in all that he has done for us. Psalm 139, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made and wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well as we come to know the mighty works of God. And we trust in his works more and more. We love him more and more. Sing to the Lord a new song, Psalm 98. For he has done marvelous things. Things at which we marvel. And we love him for it. When we trust all of these things uh, that God has done, we uh, love him more and more. And we realize that love and love of God is the purpose why we were made. Love is, uh, God is the chief good. And seeking God and loving God is something that we are to do for its own sake. When we come to church and we learn about God and we learn about who he is, we learn about his characteristics, his nature, that is something that does not need to be explained. We don't need to explain why we are seeking to know God more and more. Seeking God and loving God is an end in itself. It needs no explanation. 
It's moral, it proceeds from faith, and then it imitates Jesus. Love imitates Jesus. Think about how Jesus lived his life in unflinching obedience to God's law. The life of Christ was the most moral life, the most loving life that was ever lived. And at the end of his life, he says to his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus kept the commandments of God. He abides in his Father's love. We keep his commandments. We abide in his love. All of Jesus' life was a life of love, which is to say it was a life of moral obedience. And now, of course, this is where we know, we remind ourselves, none of us will ever measure up to Jesus' life of obedience. We look to him as an example, yes, but we also need to look to him as a savior first, as our righteousness, that righteousness that is given to us by faith. But as we live by faith, and as we trust in God's work for us, God is pleased to look upon our loving obedience, our genuine obedience. So love is moral, it proceeds from faith, and it imitates Jesus. What does Christian love do? Christian love seeks union, satisfaction, and goodwill. Union, satisfaction, and goodwill. Sorry, I don't have anything kind of tricky to make sure that you remember that. Just commit that to memory. It seeks union, satisfaction, and goodwill. We read in Scripture, of course, that we love because God first loved us. So what we're going to do with the remainder of the time today, we'll work through these quickly, is show how God loved us in a way that seeks union, satisfaction, and goodwill, and how our love exists under that. What does it mean that Christian love seeks union? Well, God sought union with his people. God loved us so much that what did he do? He sent his son to die for us, to live for us, to be our salvation. He desired to be united with his people. And Jesus Christ desired to be united with us so that he came to earth to live that life that the Father desired him to live. So we love because God first loved us as we look at that amazing love, that marvelous love. What do we desire? We desire to be united to this God. We realize more and more that life only has purpose and meaning as we are united to him. Life has no meaning if we walk around disconnected from our creator without an idea of what he has made us for. We desire to be united with him. So what does that mean? We desire to be united with him in Christ. We desire to be set right with him through the Savior. And in our ongoing walk of Christian love, we desire to always be set right with him, which means that we hate what is evil and we cling to what is good. William Ames says that we should rather die before we break even one of the least of God's commandments. We should think about that and meditate on that when too often we cheapen the grace of God. We desire to be united to him. And then as that works out from loving God, we desire to be united to our God, we also desire to be united with one another, right? Our love for each other exists underneath our love for God. We ought to desire to be united with one another. Christian love seeks union. It also seeks satisfaction. Satisfaction, what does that mean? Well, it means that God was satisfied 
He takes delight, that is, in saving his people. He is a God who delights to show mercy. He is a God who is pleased to save his people. So he loves us in that way because it delights him to save those whom he has chosen from eternity past. Here you can think of Ephesians chapter 1. According to the counsel of his own will, it was his good pleasure to save those whom he predestined for adoption as sons. It brings him delight to save. Jesus Christ, it brings him delight to accomplish redemption for his people. The picture here is a groom who is delighted in his bride. The church is described as a bride, the bride of Christ. There is perhaps no human love that is stronger than a righteous groom, a righteous husband who loves and adores his bride. There is no length to which he will not go to always protect and sanctify her, which is what Christ does. He seeks our good. He is satisfied. All of that, the shape of God's love of being satisfied in his people, shapes the way that we think about our love for God, that we are to be satisfied in him. If God is satisfied in us, if God is delighted to save us, then brothers and sisters, we must be delighted in the God who saves. Psalm 16, there are pleasures forevermore at your right hand. In your presence there is fullness of joy. We're to be satisfied in God. Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. To eat a meal that fully satisfies you is something like a picture of what we are to feel or to know in being satisfied in our God. Psalm 36, how precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 17, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This reminds us of Christian hope. What ultimately is Christian hope about? It is about having the hope and the confidence that one day we will see Jesus Christ face to face. We will behold him and we will be satisfied in him and we will realize that there is nothing greater, fully and finally, nothing greater than knowing and seeing our God and our Savior. We are to be satisfied in him. As we love our neighbor... Underneath this umbrella of God's love for us and our love for God, we are to be satisfied with one another. As the people of God, we come together and there are ways in which we are different, we have different preferences, we we struggle to, to remain at peace with everyone. And this does not mean that we accept each other's sins, this does not mean that we just write them off, we are to seek the good of one another, but we are never to be filled with a heart that says, I really just wish that person was not part of God's people. I really just wish that they were not around that much. There's a sense in which we are to be satisfied with each other because God has called us together to love one another the way that he has loved us. Love of union, of satisfaction, and finally, love, Christian love, seeks goodwill. It is a love that bestows the good 
It confers good upon the object of love. God sought to bestow us with a good that we could never have, save for his activity, his saving activity. All of the blessings that we have of salvation, we would never have if not for God's saving work. We never would have eternal life if he did not have the goodwill towards us to confer that good upon us. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we could say the same. He had a goodwill towards us that drove him to come to the earth because he loved us so much and and loved to accomplish redemption for us. There's a love of goodwill that we have towards God that we confer upon him the honor that is due his name. What we remember here is that uh, when we love God in this way, we're not giving him anything that he does not already have. We bestow honor upon God. We're not giving him glory that he does not already have. All glory belongs to him. And so it's different in that way, that God is giving us something that we would not have without him. We are merely trying to join in the song that's already going on. All creation is praising him. Think about this in in the sense, in the context of heaven. Who are the creatures who know God in the most intimate way? Would be the heavenly beings, those who dwell in his presence. And what are they constantly taken up with doing? Heavenly creatures, every time we see them in scripture, they are calling out, holy, holy, holy. It's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. You see, the more that they know, the more that a creature knows God, the more it is taken up in the worship of him. And the same must be true for us. The more that we know God, the more we realize that all things, all aspects of our lives are to be tuned to his praise are to be pointed towards seeking his glory. We're seeking to bestow upon him the honor that is due his name, but we're merely joining in the song that's already ongoing. And then, of course, as we turn to consider the love of goodwill towards one another, we're again reminded that we are to seek to confer good things, lasting things, upon our neighbor particularly upon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we loving each other in a way that shows we're seeking union, satisfaction, and goodwill? Seeking goodwill, are we turning each other towards that which is ultimately good? The foundation of all Christian religion is the love of God through faith in Jesus Christ, growing in love towards him as he increases our life in grace, And as we do so, are we zealous and fervent for one another that in all of our dealings with each other and how we treat each other in whatever we are doing, we are seeking to turn one another towards this ultimate good because we have a love of goodwill towards each other. So Christian love is a love that seeks union, to be united to God even as he has shown himself to be wanting to be united to us in Christ satisfaction that we are satisfied in God because he was satisfied in us. He takes delight in saving us. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. We are fully satisfied in him. 
and goodwill. He gave us that which we would not have otherwise had. So we seek to bless his name, to confer upon him what we may, understanding that all glory is already his. And we love one another with that love of goodwill also. So we are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children because he has loved us. And he loved us in his son. And the work of his son gives shape to the way that we know and understand his love. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. One day faith and hope will fade away. They will not, we will not need them anymore. For we will know our God face to face. We will see Jesus Christ and our souls will be fully satisfied in him. And then all that will remain between God and his people is love. But God gives us the grace uh, to grow in these virtues here and now, uh, that we might know him more, that we might trust him more, that we might be more devoted fully to him. May God give us the grace to do so, and by his grace, and in his gospel, and by the power of the Spirit, and may he give us an increase of love, Christian love, each and every day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you. We Thank you for your word, and we ask that you would give us your spirit and your grace to live according to this call, to imitate you as the God who loves. And may we have a love that seeks union and satisfaction and goodwill as we love you and as we love our neighbor as ourselves. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 400.